Hi everyone, and welcome to Conversations. I am Zarina Marani, the editor-in-chief of Five Magazine, a publication on house music that's now on its 11th year. Nikki Siano is one of the most important and pivotal people in the foundation of the dance music scene. At the very tender age of 17, he opened and designed, as well as DJed, his very own club, which has often been said to be the very first disco, and it was called The Gallery. He's been credited with launching the careers of such luminaries as Frankie Knuckles, Larry Levan, Grace Jones, and Lolita Holloway. Not to mention paving the way for clubs such as the Paradise Garage and Studio 54, of which he was also a resident. I've always been fascinated by Nikki, and when he came out with his documentary on the gallery called Love is the Message, it reignited my interest in interviewing him. And then I recently saw a video interview he did with the Red Bull Music Academy and how lively and animated he was. I knew right away he would be the perfect pick for this inaugural podcast. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, I really, really loved your your interview with the Red Bull Academy. I thought that was like... Uh, oh, thank you. One of the best interviews I had ever, ever watched ever from Red Bull. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank and you. And one of the things is, is actually one of the first things you said, which I guess we'll just jump in right away, um, was, you know, you talked about DJ instincts and, you know, you should go with your first instinct when you play, right. not right. your second or your third. Can you talk about that? Because I really love that. Well... I'm I'm a, a, a meditator. I meditate, and um, I haven't in a while. And I just started again, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, just within the last month. Mm-hmm. And um, I've meditated since 1983. I started, and I I think it's all about. Um, it's all about like what we don't see, what we feel, what we, our instincts. And as a DJ, I think that it's so important to develop those instincts, to be open to those instincts. I mean, I've had points, um, in the gallery movie, someone says it, he says, um, I'll be thinking of a song, and then he plays it. Mm-hmm. It's because we're all thinking of the same song. It's not me thinking about it. It's like the collective unconsciousness thinking about the song. And um, we all hear the same thing. And um, it's it's really... Uh, it's something to undeveloped like you, instead of developing the skill you have to undevelop your ego and your 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 other you know man-made things that you've relied on all these years and get to a, a more quiet place a place where you can just listen and um that's where i think djing is is heightened and it's the most artistic nights I find are those where I'm just getting out of my own way that's amazing no drugs no alcohol (laughs) just being present I think that's what DJing is all about it's about um, you really not 
it's it's really great that you have a crowd that's listening to you play, but you're really not playing for them. You're playing for yourself, and not in a selfish way, but to enjoy this beautiful music that you love so much. And, you know, there are people who, um, there's this guy, who, and he sent me this mix that he did, and he's saying, oh, listen to my mixes, and they were all old songs, but just just thrown together, and I said, well, it didn't, you know, I, I didn't feel any flair or any unusual thing about it, it was just, you know, one song after another, he said, yeah, a lot of the songs I hadn't listened to yet. Well, <laughs> um, hello, if you're not listening to the music and you're not enjoying it, you know, David Mancuso said something to me once, and it was always, you know, I'll never forget certain things, and this was one of the gems. If the record isn't good from beginning to end, then why play it? And so it's it's really, you know, about the vinyl. Yeah, I mean, you have so much, you know, it's funny. I, I think you met my brother. Well, he came to see you play in Chicago when you played at the Virgin Hotel. His name was Carlos. He took some Wait, did he come up to me at the end of the night? I don't know. Some guy said to me at the end of the night, I I came to hear my favorite DJ's favorite DJ, ah, and I thought that was so beautiful. I thought that was yeah, it could have. Been. His name was Carlos, and he took some videos of you, and you were just jamming, and it was like it oh, was so awesome to me. Because I had one of the best happy. times in Chicago. It was, um, you know, I just played what I a, a lot of times. You know, you you are forced to play things sometimes that. But I didn't, I didn't feel that from that crowd. That crowd was just deep, you know. They, mm-hmm. well, however deep I was going, they were down the rabbit hole with me, and it was just great. Right. My new agent, she was very determined to get me a gig in Chicago, and she, you know, all these years, I, I've really never played Chicago, you know. And she was, like, so determined to get me there because of my connection with Frankie and, you know, mm-hmm. and our lifetime friendship. I mean, I spoke to him, you know, two days before he died. It was just, you know, we never stopped talking all these years. You know, I was reading this thing, um, reading all these old interviews with you last night, and you said, you know, there are no more freak-out moments and when DJs play their own records. So do you play? Do you ever uh, play new music? Do you ever play your own music, or do you like to play records that have you know that have stood the test of time? Like, what, what do you like to play in your set? Well, you know, I used to play new house music and old music. I used to mm-hmm. mix mix it up, and um, it was really I loved it, but people just they just were not. I mean, if I did it, I did it. I've done it recently too, and it worked much better. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Within the last ten years, it just seemed not to be working. I, what I've been doing that I just love is finding old songs that just 
haven't really been played a lot, like making them hits again or or making them bigger hits than they were. There's a couple of Billy Paul records that I've done that with, Let Them In, Let Them In, which Let was the in. name of one of his albums, That was, and that's the title cut, Let Them In. And it's just such a great song, and we used to play it like at the end of the night sometimes, but I, it's become a big hit for me, and be thankful for what you got. You know, it's that long version of that song. I played the album version, and I, I just started playing it again, and people don't know that album version of it, and it goes on and on. It's got Vince Montana plays on it, and he arranged it. It's really incredible, and people just go crazy for it. And I bring the, you know, I bring it down. You know, a lot of people they don't play anything below 120 beats per minute, and I was I play a whole set at 98. You know, <laughs> really nice. Mm-hmm. That's so unheard of. Yeah. They're like Moonshadow by LaBelle. I don't know if you ever heard it. They're just such great... um, And then I found this other cut on the Billy Paul album, Let Them In, called We're All on a Mission. And it's a great song, but it just needed a nip and a tuck, so I did a little edit of it. And Mm -hmm. that's become a big hit for me, too, that I play at all my gigs, and people are now singing along to it. It happened, it started with um, about a year and a half ago with Only the Strong Survived by Billy Paul, which really wasn't a big hit back then, but I played it to death at my gigs, and it just become a hit again. So that's basically what I'm doing now. I'm making old songs that really didn't, weren't hits back then into hits now. <laughs> how, do you, how do you break that in? I mean... Maybe because people have so much reverence and respect for you that they will trust you, that you will play songs that they will like, or uh, how would you recommend, or even when you were starting to DJ, how did you bring in new songs that people were not familiar with and maybe they had to get used to it at first? Oh, I mean, Frankie says it on the, on the, in the, in the gallery movie, he, in the interview he did, he said, um, yeah, the night you got Love is a Message, I think you played it about ten times. <laughs> oh my God. And back then, I mean, it was like you went out on a Saturday night. It was like listening to your favorite radio show. And I had you for ten hours. And if I love the record, you're going to hear it that yeah. night about four or five times. And then the next week, it w- you'd hear it only twice, but it would be a hit. When you heard it, you know, yeah. and then the next week it'll be down to once a night. But it would—it's just sometimes, like I said, uh, whenever I do a gig or I do a podcast or I do this, I will play that song. I'll fit it in, you right. know, so that people get used to it, and then it starts being identified with me. It's, yeah. That's so, I mean, and it's so hard to do that now, right? When DJs only have an hour to kind of like prove themselves. And yeah, that's why I really don't like to play those two-hour sets. I really don't. Yeah. How do you like to play your sets? I mean, do you usually have the whole night when they... Yeah, I usually like to do, a, a, you know, the whole night or, mm-hmm. or um, you know, a four-hour, five-hour set. I really think the whole night is really the only way 
for uh, someone who's DJing to play because it's you walk in and the music is pumping and you know it's not the beginning of the night it's not where you want to be you know you want to be at a kind of lower slower level you know it's so it's really to do a journey mm -hmm. it's you from beginning to end right. and i i you know i just think it's good that's works for me best because that's what i'm used to I know you probably hate this word, and you've asked this question a million times, but um, I know you loathe the word disco, and yeah. um, you kind of went on about it in one of the interviews, but I, mm -hmm. since we're doing a recorded podcast where people get to hear your voice and get to hear exactly mm -hmm. how you feel about it, can you express to us why you hate the word disco and how it was commercialized? I, yeah, because we were creating something really special, this whole environment for people to dance, no matter what color, no matter what sexual identification you were, it, it, people came together to dance to this new style of music. And the record companies needed to call the music something, right, mm -hmm. in order to sell it, because it was selling so well, they wanted a label for it. So they chose disco. And then what they did was they started making these covers, and I'm sure you've seen them, and they say yeah. disco, you know, Atlantic disco, South Soul disco. And they did that because there was a point in 1974 when people would see that banner and they just would cold buy the record. Like Mel Sharon, I'll never forget, he said, a Michelle, the Michelle album, which wasn't his biggest album, you know, wasn't even, it didn't even have one record that anyone played on it, sold 200,000 out of the box because wow. of that banner. Wow. But it worked against them because they started taking every piece of crap that they needed to sell and get rid of and put that banner on it. And people were getting burned left and right. And that really was what Kaminsky Park and Disco Sucks was all about, was all the crap records that they were putting out under that banner. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I'm... I'm so, you know, disenchanted with that word and the use of it. It was horrible. And it, Ethel Merman did a disco album. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It, it was really was sad. Happened? Was that a really low point, I suppose, when disco sucks happened? I mean, what what was the state of the disco community at the time, or, or however you would call it? I guess you were calling it R&B. Well, I remember, I'll never forget it. Someone turned around to me, and they said, you know, Nikki, um, they're saying disco sucks, and disco is dead. What do you think? And I said, they're right. It is. It's dead. Because house music was on its way in. I was already playing a lot of stuff, you know, that was coming out mm -hmm. that Frankie was turning me on to, and it was, you know, it was just, it really was. It was dead. You know, it was that whole sound was over for me. Not 
the but not the R and B stuff that started it, but all that kind of Giorgio Moroder stuff that I just which was so innovative when it happened, but I can't listen to those records today. I mean, I feel love that record. Uh-huh. It's just to me such a piece of crap. Um, oh, and no. I remember the night I heard it, I I thought, oh my god, this is brilliant. And and now I listen today, and it's just nothing with no words. You know, just someone not even you know. It, what, they didn't even have a melody for it. They made that up in the recording studio as they were recording the song. It's such... And then you go back to the early 70s, like things with like The Love I Lost, which was orchestrated and just so finely tuned mm-hmm. to have peaks and valleys and move the record. By the end of it, you just screaming with excitement a whole whole different thing you know it is but you welcomed house music when it was starting to come in when like the stuff that frankie was playing where you started absolutely absolutely yes we all were moving on i mean larry and i were just totally on the same page about it we were like oh okay awesome i i spend all my time like right now do you know the song funky nassau of course. I, I like right now. I'm doing an edit of Funky Nassau, and mm-hmm. it's like uh, it's taking up all my time. But like that song, no one plays that song. You never hear it when you go out. It's a fucking no. awesome song, and there's a part two that fucking takes you away, and that the the bass line is from another song, and I can't figure it out. It's just incredible. Um, yeah. So yeah, the horns so, make me happy. I love the horns. <laughs> yeah, the horns are really cool. Yeah, um, but like the how those horns come in and how it starts, it really isn't. It's really not very inviting. And but part two starts incredibly with the drum beat, and that's what I did. I started it with that drum beat and looped that, and then I sort of went into the bulk of the part one, and then went back to part two and made a couple of breaks in it. It's really coming out nice. Did you release it or uh, like on a label or do you just kind of like... Um, you know, I haven't had... I've been sending out some edits uh, left and right, but... Uh, well, not really left and right. I've been sending them out. A few people approached me, but nothing has really clicked yet. But I I hope something will click. With uh, oh yeah, with one or two of my edits, um, I did I did a few of them that are really I think really hot. I know I'm. My do you kids, send them to any DJs or do you just play them yourself? Um, I give them to whoever asks. I did this one from um, uh, Why Can't We Live Together by Timmy Thomas. We did a big remix of that, and mm-hmm. that and that. I gave to a lot of people, and then now it's coming out. It's someone else did it, but I added a few like horn, a few um, like an organ break and a couple of things on it. And it's, I heard it was coming out on vinyl, but I haven't seen it. Thing, nothing else. That was it. Why can't we live together? Was the only one that I think is going to actually come out. I have three more questions to ask you. It was regarding 
it's something that I feel really strongly about that's happening in club life right now. I think I think it happens a lot in Berlin, but the Studio 54 deal with, you know, the whole exclusionary policy that they had, the pick and choose, I read that you were highly against it, and I wanted to know, um, you know, what you thought about that whole time. Was that a necessary part of the evolution of the whole, you know, Studio 54 becoming big and certain clubs treating people a certain way? Because right now, you know, I know it's happening in some clubs, Still, right now, that are supposed to be under yeah, I know, I know. I just, I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. It's not my cup of tea. I don't like people who are standing online and 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 they're waiting and waiting and they never get in. I just can't. It's got to be some kind of democratic, you know, admission policy. You know, mm-hmm. you wait online, you're the next one, you go in. You know, it's just I don't know. Or, you know, like the gallery was private membership, but it was it was just as simple as, you know, you can come as a guest, and if the guest recommends you, you can get your own membership, you know. Simple. And, you know, there was a procedure in place. For studio, it was totally arbitrary. I mean, there's people who got in one night and never got in again. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, do you think that was part of the mystique that that's why it's 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 so famous? Well, it was part of the mystique, but it also was part of the downfall. I mean, people hated that policy, and they, you know, when you build up that much negative energy, nothing could save you. You know, it's just right. I mean, studio only the height of Studio Fifty Four was three years. I mean, that it's even the gallery was seven years. The garage went on for 18 years, you know? I mean, what is three years? And to be the most famous club, it's really interesting. It's very interesting. Well, they did the biggest, you know, they had the best publicist. (laughs) That must be it. It's it's all that hype. You know what I love about, you know, you, and then I I saw this quote, uh, I think this is like from Attack Magazine, you said, this is your quote, you said, the only thing on our mind was to create a space where people could dance and really experience and enhance the music to the point where they would have the best time of their life. It was always a happy time. Today, a lot of people go to clubs, and it's a chore. Back then, oh, my God, you look forward every day of the week to Saturday night and go to the gallery or the loft. You're going to hear music for the first time, and you're going to dance to songs with a group of like-minded people who would be screaming and yelling and tambourining all around you. It was happy. It was exciting. Today, it's none of those things. But my party will be like that, absolutely. And I think you were talking about your upcoming birthday party when you did the interview. Yeah. Um, it's That's, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you it, it's really true that sometimes, like uh, last night, I had to go to this thing at a club, and it was a chore. It was a chore. And um, it's a shame because... Um, it's you know it really can be fun and i've been to nights that were fun i've been to the greatest nights ever some of the greatest nights ever i've been to so um but it's you know people are too you know it's all about money this is the basic thing it came down to the basic thing that runs the fucking planet money and it's all about money and you feel it from the minute you walk into the door until the minute you leave and that's what's fucking it up 
because it wasn't about money back then. It was five fucking dollars to get into the gallery, and we served you food, free Kotech, free everything, and yet we made lots of money. So, and at the time, it was, you know, it was a different economy and everything, and you couldn't do that today. But you could find ways to do that and make money. Like, I'm giving a free party uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving just as a thank you, and it's two floors and the best sound system in, one of the best sound systems in New York right now, the Black Flamingo. It's all clipshorns, and it's, you know, there are ways to do it. People drink, and the bar makes money, and that's it. You know, it's fine. You know, yeah. but, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, you don't have to soak people up or you don't have to make them feel like, you know, that's all it's about. And the attitude of these door people, oh, my God, especially the security, yeah. they're like, they're not, you know, these are your patrons. They're not little piglets, you know. It's really horrible how people are treated. Get back in the fucking line, I heard someone say. What? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. You don't I talk to people who are paying entrance fees like that. <laughs> do you tell them? I mean, do you, do you make it a point to... Uh, what you oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. Staff? All the time. So what were some of the, your favorite parties over the years that you could say, I mean, nowadays, that maybe gives you hope that maybe they're, they're not quite like the parties when they, back back then, but... Well, you know, Body and Soul was really the last party that I thought was it. it I mean, it really was. You, I look forward to going every Sunday. It was really cool. And they were introducing new records left and right, and it was really, that's like the to, uh, the period of house music that I got into, a lot of new new house music, and that was like an incredibly good time for the music, too. It was just incredible. Yeah. And um, then the offshoot of that, 718 Sessions, is got a little bit of that going on, too. But still, it, it's not body and soul. The magic of body and soul was amazing. Mm -hmm. It really reminded me of the loft of the gallery. It really did. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't really touch on it. Um, I, I loved your movie, Love is the Message. And uh, I know Frankie and, and Larry kind of like got their start working at, at Club Life there, whether it was blowing up balloons or just kind of helping you out. Can you just tell us any special stories that you can about Frankie or Larry? Anything at all that comes to mind? I, I know you've told a lot about them, but, you know, we, we all like hold a special place, obviously, with Frankie over here and how sweet he was. Uh, what was he like when he was what was he, 17, 18, when he was out there? Yeah. Yeah, it was, we were all 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were all 18. Or I think Larry might have been 19. Larry and Frankie might have been a year older than me. But I don't know. I, I think we were all 18 at the time. I mean, 17, mm -hmm. they started 17. I remember the club opened, I was 17. And then that March, I turned 18. It was within a month I turned 18. And I met them the second night. Actually, I yeah. met Frankie the first night. You were all babies. <laughs> so young. Yeah. Blows my mind. And that, and that was through his friend Donald Woods, who is still my best friend today. <laughs> Aww. Um, 
he um, came up to the booth, and I, Robin said, this is Donna Woods, and this is Frankie Knuckles, and uh, Frankie needs a job. And I said, please, come next week early at 9.30 and help us set up, and you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came in, and he said, Nikki, you know, I got this uh, friend, and he's um, he's he's really crazy, but he's really creative, too. And he's going to be a great fashion designer. And um, I really would like to bring him. His name is Larry. And um, I said, fine, Frankie, we need people. Fine, hired, you know. And he was there that night, and then he started working. So Larry started the third weekend. Frankie started the second weekend. And Frankie and Larry were there every Saturday night for the first year and a half. And then Larry moved in with me for a while. I mean, he would, we were roommates for a long time. He got When he started working at the Bats, he sort of lived at the Bats for a while. Okay, a little something uh, that I haven't <laughs> told anybody because I usually don't talk about this, but there was this third person in the group. His name was Ricky. Ricky was born the same day, same year as I am. So he was like my twin. And Ricky and Larry were in charge of spiking the punch. <laughs> <laughs> and they would come over to the booth, and I'd give them this little sheet of blot of acid with like 20 <laughs> hits on it. And they would have to take it in these little cups, and they would go up in the hallway. It would be the hallway had, you know, big stairs. And if you went up, there was nothing. It was all closed. You know, there was nothing open in the building except us. So they would go up the stairs instead of down the stairs where everybody was hanging out. They would go up the stairs and they would take two cups and they would mix them back and forth to melt down this blotter in the water and then they would throw that water into the punch. Larry and Ricky are together and Ricky is drinking out of one cup that he had that he was drinking from, Larry's going back and forth with the two cups back and forth, and the cups are getting all mixed up, and then <laughs> Ricky picks up a cup, and he takes a sip, and Larry goes, Ricky, oh my God, you drank the wrong cup, and Ricky was, you're kidding me, no, the oh, don't worry, here it is, I got it right here behind me. Oh! <laughs> He would do that all the time, but Larry did that all the time. He would do stuff like that all the time. He was that's, a little prankster. I mean, that's, that's the kind of jokes we would have back then. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I really loved your movie. That, that, was, that was a great, oh, my gosh. We had a party two years ago for Frankie's birthday, and we all had a viewing party of Love is the Message, and it was just we would be screaming every time a new person would kind of come into the camera, like all the people with their outfits and how they looked and everything. We was just Yeah, isn't that amazing? Just the whole, the whole look of, of the people. It was just, and people would dress up, and they would come to the gallery, and it was really wild. I mean, Larry would be making these, I tell this story often, Larry would be making these cap sleeve t-shirts, and I never saw one before. 
and he'd be Shimako, his friend Shimako, he would design them and Shimako would make them and he would wear them almost every Saturday night. And then two or three months into him wearing these cap sleeve T-shirts every Saturday night, I go down the village and there's Capizio in the window, cap sleeve T-shirts. And there's a whole rack of them inside. And it was... That was Larry's idea, and I'm going. This is Larry's idea, <laughs> and and you know that's the kind of stuff that was happening back then. I mean, one designer after another who was Willie Smith, Calvin Klein, Stephen Burroughs. It was like, and the models, all their models as well. It was like a watering hole for the fashion industry. That first gallery, the one on Twenty Second Street. There were no clubs when we opened. It was either the loft or the gallery. And that was it. So we both were very busy. (laughs) It's nice because you know what I always say, you know, people who talk about dressing up for a club and not dressing up like just, you know, like the standard uniform bottle service, but it's nice because it shows kind of a respect and a reverence. And it's actually, I don't know, when people dress up, it shows, it's almost like playing dress up and saying, we're going to do this because we want create an environment of... Yes, that, that guy, the teacher in, in the film, he says, you know, we call each other, we talk about what we're going to wear, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, mm-hmm. that was it. It was like, you know, you really decided what you were going to wear, and, you know, when I went, used to go to the loft every Saturday night, it was like, what should I wear to the loft, and <laughs> oh, I got these brand new shoes, they're really high. And I'm going to dance in them all night long. I don't care how my feet feel. Oh, it's like really, you had to really commit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why I think the gallery and the loft were so successful because it was not a club. And you knew it was not a club because it didn't look like a club. It didn't feel like a club. People were giving away food. They were giving away drinks. You know, it was, there was, just people all around just having passing joints, and it was just a party. It was really a party. That's what the essence of it should be. It's a party. Right, in Chicago? I think we're going to have a really good time on the 22nd, but I think it's going to happen sometime next year. We're going to bring it, we're going to, bring it to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. State of New Yorker, I'm going to call it. Okay. Thank you okay. so much. Nikki, it's been such a okay. Awesome you. Okay. I hope to see you on the 22nd. I will see you there. Take care. Okay. okay. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.